This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Hello and welcome to Heritage Matters, a programme brought to you by the Southern Heritage Trust and sponsored by Heritage New Zealand. I'm Dougal Stevenson. In this programme, Bill Southworth interviews Joe Gaylor about the demolition of character homes in Dunedin. We hear how Logan Park was created. Gregor Campbell has been very busy this week, and I read from his history, his brief history of the Carisbrook rugby ground. And we finish with another story from Gregor about an overly amorous train passenger. The Southern Heritage Trust has become concerned at recent demolition announcements which place grand character houses under threat. These houses do not have the protection status of heritage buildings, but nevertheless are part of the important historic legacy of Dunedin City. This report from Bill Southworth. There seem to be more grand houses in Dunedin than any other New Zealand city. They, along with the heritage buildings, form part of the look of Dunedin, the one that gets tourists clicking shots on their cell phones and cameras. Thus, members of the Southern Heritage Trust were surprised to see permission being given for the demolition of a grand property in George Street. A developer intends to replace it with a block of apartments. Elsewhere, in Manor Place, another grand house has been blocked in by apartments built right in front and the back of it. Pressure is building as the government, grappling with the country's housing shortage, pushes to have more living quarters built in the inner city, at what is feared to be at the cost of splendid older houses. The Dunedin City Council is reviewing its district plan, which it calls 2GP, and this will provide an opportunity to make submissions about saving the special nature of some Dunedin houses. In the studio is Southern Heritage Trust chairperson Joe Gaylor. I asked her why she considered these old buildings were important. Because they reveal a lot about our heritage and Dunedin being the penultimate city in New Zealand that has the most. So there will be some old buildings that are extremely important in Dunedin and we seem to think of buildings, when we think of Dunedin we think of the town hall and we think of the railway station but in reality what it's all about is critical mass. So when you drive through from the airport, for example, or you drive in from the north of the city and you drive past swathes of heritage, that's what in reality gives us our mojo, if you like, and our mana as a city. But don't you have a problem? And we have heritage buildings, but there's another category, sort of character buildings, that are not preserved by any legislation. How do you handle that problem? Well, it's a little bit difficult because there are a lot of what they call character contributing buildings on our district plan, or now 2GP, but many of them are unprotected because they haven't had the research done on them in order to seal them as a as a listed on the district plan building or house or um, structure. So... We have this problem where we need to do all this research and that will give more teeth to the district plan and for those buildings that have special character. The reason they've been identified as having special character 
is because often it's sort of by happenstance really that a building near them or, or houses near them have ca- um, category listings with Heritage New Zealand and they could be sort of a grouping of buildings but then around that grouping of buildings it might be protected by current character provisions or by listing with Heritage New Zealand will be a range of other buildings that through for various reasons often not related to merit they have been left off the list or not pursued for for listing I mean some of these organisations like Heritage New Zealand only have limited resources obviously so they can only sort of do so many a year with the staff that they have and I don't want to speak for them but this is just a general perception that we have so then we have these character contributing buildings of which there are many of them which are sitting there unprotected and in reality they're worthy of it well look Let's look at a recent example. There's a character property going to be demolished in George Street and replaced with an apartment complex. What's your reaction to that? It's horrifying, quite frankly. George Street is actually one of our main entrances to the city. It's a heritage precinct. It was set up as such, I believe, in the either the, I think it might have been the early 80s. Robert Tung, the city's architect, was at the time was very pro-heritage. And uh, that whole street has a look and feel to it that we are very proud of in Dunedin. So it's a character-contributing building, the one that's proposed for demolition. So it's, as I just described to you before, it's one of those outliers that nevertheless makes up the whole image of, of George Street, but which is sitting there totally unprotected, that... Uh, people can come along and say, well, okay, um, in this case they had an engineering or structural report which they said meant that the building could not be saved or um, renovated. So um, the story with that one was that uh, they had no choice but to pull it down and, you know, I'm not not privy to the reports myself and whether or not, in fact, uh, that is, um, I can only take the City Council's word for that, to pull it down and utilise a a large site, the large site that it's on, for uh, apartments. There's another problem too, there's a a beautiful house in Manor Place that's basically been hemmed in because developers have been allowed to build units in front of the building and behind it. Don't we have regulations to prevent that sort of thing? Unfortunately, uh, this is something that the Southern Heritage Trust, we lobbied strong and hard for the 2GP to be not as permissive as it is. And so what you're getting now is the conflicting demands of intensive housing versus heritage. So you've got the need for more housing in Dunedin coming up against the fact that a lot of the areas that they have Uh, marked as being suitable for intensive housing also just happen to be our most accessible parts of the city and our most heritage loaded parts of the city so there's an er inherent conflict in that. Of course some might argue that this is an elitist problem that uh, to try and preserve these character buildings and deny people access to accommodation in in a city is really a very elitist thing to do. What's your reaction to that? Well, some might say that some of the new builds that are going up are anything but elitist. In fact, they're probably the slums of the future, and they are small, handkerchief-sized apartments that can't fit families that perhaps might be able to, for example, be suitable for a single student And uh, the tradition with student housing is that it's cheap and suitable only for students. 
So there's nothing elitist about that. And keeping our heritage. So as well, I would argue that when it comes to our heritage and, and that argument that it's elitist, actually it suits Dunedin's entire economy to retain that heritage because without it, we're just another Hamilton. Yes, I notice that the cruise ships are in today and that the passengers off those ships are looking at our heritage precincts and taking pictures of buildings and so on. I guess they're not going to be taking pictures of new buildings, are they? Uh, no way. I mean, we're talking something that's not only is it a tourist attraction and we've had something like 200,000. And that's incredible. That's, that's so good for our economy. They're pumping millions of dollars into our economy. And if that is one of the reasons why they're coming into Dunedin is to photograph and see the heritage and learn, I'd like them to learn more about the heritage, actually. I'd love to see more information boards outside a lot of our buildings. I'm sure they would be widely read. Staying with character buildings, do you think we need new regulations to cover good character buildings the way that heritage buildings are currently covered? Oh, absolutely. And that is what we're, we're driving towards. And I think the Dunedin City Council is very aware of that. And we're working with them to try to get some better protection for those character contributing buildings. Because as I said, you know, you can't just, you can't just imagine a city that only has the railway station and the town hall and a few other sort of token heritage buildings left. We may as well be Auckland or Wellington. And that is not going to happen to us, not, not on our watch. Oh, perish the thought. Yeah. Yeah. The City Council is talking about creating a new plan to cover heritage. Uh, what would you like to see in that plan? Oh, look, firstly, I just want to say that's fantastic news. Um, Sophie Barker and her team and the councillors and Lee Vandivis that have voted for that. I was delighted to read that. I would like to see these character contributing buildings added to, that the numbers are um, enriched, if you like, that the... Um, we have plenty of research capability in the city, that all of these buildings are researched and that their stories are, are kept alive through the research and through the listing process. First up, um, I would love to see our heritage buildings reused more than they currently are, that if there is a proposal for a new build in the city, that first of all they should be looking at what we have currently that they can add to. I think the, the McKnight brothers, for example, were brilliant at this and we have um, the old Donald Reed warehouse and, and uh, the warehouse precinct, as it's come to be known, is a case in point where they have a substantial company running out of um, a large heritage building. There are others. If only people would have that more long-term view and also see that they are much more attractive to work in than some of our newer builds. And in fact, I hear that they are losing you know, tenants from some of our more ordinary new builds around the city who all want to flock to that Vogel Street area to work. So, you know, there, there's appeal and there's economic value in that. And once we get with the programme and realise that this is valuable to developers and to the city and to the citizens, to everybody, to tourists, to people wanting to come and live here. Once we understand that and embed that in a heritage strategy that places heritage front and centre, then we will get some real progress in Dunedin and I'm quite sure the money will follow. And do you think your submissions to the council will be taken seriously? 
Yes, I do. And I think they currently are taken seriously. And I feel very heartened by, um, for example, their current heritage advisor, Mark Maudsley. He's doing a great job. Uh, they've got some extra resources in there, which tells me they're also taking it seriously. But they need to enshrine a lot of this across a lot of the work that they do. I'd love to see the Economic Development Unit pay more attention to heritage. And um, I'm sure they are now, but I'd like to see even more done there with regards to the tourism potential of heritage. Joe Gaylor, thank you very much. Thank you. Gregor Campbell has been laid low with suspected covid but before then, he prepared a story on how Logan Park was formed, and it's read by Judy Southworth. It seemed as if, back in the day, everyone's grandmother had a souvenir of the Great Exhibition, either a hand-tinted picture of the Great Dome with the fountain in front, or a piece of clear and red glass with the name of the exhibition etched into it. It was a century ago in May that the Committee of the New Zealand and South Seas International Exhibition finally made the decision to build it on the site now called Logan Park. Other potential sites were Tuhuna Park, the Oval, the Botanic Gardens and the nearby Palisher Bay Reclamation. Lake Logan was decided upon due to its potential size, the beauty of the surrounding hills and its proximity to the Port Chalmers Railway. Lake Logan had been a favourite place for water sports in North Dunedin, formed by the embankment of the Port Chalmers Railway and filled with fresh water by the Opaho Stream. Over the years, however, it had become silted up and weedy and was no longer so attractive. It was an ideal candidate for reclamation, using sand dredged up from the Otago Harbour. To make the site ready in time for the 1925 exhibition opening, the Bluff Harbour dredge Murihiku was leased to the Otago Harbour Board to make three dredges working on the job. The reclamation of Lake Logan went on at pace and in tandem with the building of a concrete canal for the water of Leith and a smaller one for the Opaho stream. It was a race against time. The reclamation had to be consolidated in time for the exhibition's buildings to be built and the grounds laid out. It was a race they won and the £66,592 profit at the exhibition's end translates to £2.6 million today. That report read by Judy Southworth. To any New Zealander, the name Carisbrook means only one thing. The old stadium, the Brook, the House of Pain, from which in the 1950s you could hear the roar in the octagon when the home team scored a try. It may surprise some that the name was originally that of a cricket club, and before that, a house. In Dunedin, Carisbrook was the name given in the early 1850s by James MacAndrew, soon to be superintendent of the province of Otago, to his house, which once stood several hundred metres up the glen, from where the stadium would eventually be built. It, in turn, was named after Carisbrook Castle on the Isle of Wight. In 1861, MacAndrew's Carisbrook was designated by its owner as a prisoner for debtors, for the reason that there was no suitable accommodation for them in the Dunedin prison. The reason for this was also that MacAndrew had been arrested for debt and imprisoned. His proclamation went as follows. Proclamation by His Honour James MacAndrew Esquire, Superintendent of the Province of Otago. 
Whereas, by an ordinance enacted by the Lieutenant Governor of New Zealand, by and with the consent of the Legislative Council thereof, Session 7, Number 7, entitled An Ordinance of the Regulation of Prisons, it is enacted that it shall be lawful for His Excellency the Governor, from time to time, as to him shall seem meet, by proclamation to declare any house, building, enclosure, or place to be a public jail. And from and after the publication of any such proclamation, such house, building, enclosure, or place shall be deemed and taken to be a public jail. And whereas, by another ordinance, enacted by the superintendent of the province of Otago, by and with the advice of the provincial council thereof, session 1, number 6, entitled An Ordinance to Empower the Superintendent of the Province of Otago to perform certain acts hereto performed by the Governor and Lieutenant Governor of New Zealand and by the Resident Magistrate of Otago, it is provided that all such powers, as are conferred by the ordinance enumerated in the schedule thereto appended upon the Governor and Chief Governor or Lieutenant Governor or the officer administering the government of the colony or province for the time being, are thereby within the province of Otago conferred to the superintendent thereof. And whereas the ordinance aforesaid is included in the said schedule, and whereas there's no suitable accommodation for debtors within the present jail buildings of Dunedin, and it is expedient that proper provision shall be made in that behalf. Now, therefore, I, the said superintendent of the province of Otago, do hereby and declare that Carisbrook House shall be deemed and taken to be one of the jails of the colony of New Zealand, until proper provision is made otherwise in that behalf. Given under my hand and seal at Dunedin in the province of Otago, this 28th day of January, 1861. James MacAndrew, Superintendent. On hearing that MacAndrew was still running the province from his house, the Governor Thomas Brown made two proclamations. One removed the designation of prison from Carisbrook House, the other removed James MacAndrew from the office of Superintendent. The Carisbrook Cricket Club was founded in 1873 and played at Monticello Ground, the Oval and the Caledonian Society's grounds, before mention of the Carisbrook Ground is made in 1878. Lying at the bottom of the glen, the ground was possibly available for use as a sports field because of its tendency to flood, making it unattractive for building on. It saw its first international game in 1884 when the club hosted one from Tasmania, the Evening Star, which reported the match, made reference to the imperfect drainage of the ground. The first cricket match ever played between teams representing Tasmania and Otago commenced at the Carisbrook ground this afternoon. The game was to have started yesterday, but owing to the heavy rain that fell on Thursday night, an adjournment was made to today. The ground was naturally in a very heavy state the lower end being actually underwater at the time play commenced. Still, a fair wicket had been prepared. Tasmania won the toss, and to everyone's surprise, batted first. Otago were the match winners by eight wickets. The first international game of rugby at the ground was in June 1908, when 19,000 people saw Britain soundly beaten 35-5. 
As is well known, the House of Pain was demolished after being sold to the Dunedin City Council by the Otago Rugby Union for $7 million in 2009. It was sold on four years later at a $2.3 million loss. Train journeys used to have a whiff of romance about them. However, a passenger on an early 20th century trip between Christchurch and Invercargill was accused of letting his amorous instincts get out of hand. It resulted in a court case reported by the Truth newspaper. Gregor Campbell reads its report. In 1908, in a railway carriage on the line between Christchurch and Dunedin, a certain act between two consenting people occurred. Two certain acts, actually, and possibly more, though it was only two which were the subject of a court appearance by a respectable Invercargill businessman. It was grist for the mill, for the New Zealand truth. Merchant in a mess. John Batker's bad behaviour. What happened in the express? Intense respectability saves a sexual sinner. Somewhat of a sensation was caused in the South Island by the appearance in the Christchurch Magistrates Court on Wednesday of John Batker, frozen meat and produce merchant of Invercargill, on a charge of committing a grossly indecent act in a carriage on the Dunedin and Christchurch Express on March 10. Batker is a keen-faced, middle-aged individual who usually stops at Warner's aristocratic pub when in Christchurch. He pleaded not guilty through lawyer Donnelly. The prosecution was based mainly on the evidence of guard Frank Vernazzoni, who passed through the birdcage occupied by Batka and the young woman when the train was near Glenavy. He discovered the couple in such a position as to leave no doubt in his mind that a grossly indecent act was being committed by both. He remarked to Batka that if he was going to commit an indecent act, he might at least draw the curtains. Batka replied, It's all right, old man then reaching behind him, displayed his tourist ticket. Guard afterwards returned and asked for the ticket to ascertain the name of the traveller, but Batka refused to show it. He also refused to give the name of the lady and offered the guard a whiskey. That functionary was not to be bribed and threatened to report the libertine who said, you'll get yourself in trouble as well as me. George Walker, news agent, joined the train at Palmerston South. He was passing through the train near Shagpoint Junction and looked through the window of the birdcage and saw something that shocked him something terrible. On returning later, he witnessed more, and the conduct of Batka and the lady scandalised him. Lawyer Donnelly cross-questioned him severely, and witness said he couldn't swear as to what they were actually doing. Counsel for the defence claimed that the evidence of Walker related to an act separate and distinct from that testified to by the guard and couldn't be heard in support of the charge. Sergeant Johnston contended that the offence was a continuous one. Mr Donnelly urged that where alleged offences were committed within 100 miles of each other, they should be the subject of two different charges and evidence pertaining to one couldn't be given in support of the other. The point was important as the guard's evidence would thus be uncorroborated. Counsel quoted law on the subject and mentioned the case of Hall of Timaru when the prisoner was charged with the murder of his father-in-law. The court then admitted evidence that Hall had formally given poison to his wife, but the Court of Appeal subsequently held that such testimony was inadmissible and Hall was sentenced to imprisonment for life. 
Hargreaves and Peter Pender, J's P, decided to hear the whole of the facts, however. For the defence, Connolly represented that Batka was an eminently respectable merchant from prohibited Invercargill, where he had a wife and family. He called an ex-bank manager of Invercargill, now in Christchurch, as to his character. Batka had a son attending Christ's College. A Christchurch grain merchant also testified to Batka's intense respectability. John Batka, giving evidence in his own defence, said he'd known the young lady ever since she was a small child and met her on the Palmerston platform. He'd been travelling in a first-class smoker and joined the girl in the birdcage. They were talking when the close atmosphere of the compartment made her faint. He called the waiter, who brought some soda, and he put a teaspoonful of whiskey in her glass. The girl then fainted, and in assisting her, his actions were open to misinterpretation by the guard. He swore that he had not been guilty of indecency. The lady would be the first to resent it, and she knew nothing of the present proceedings. With regard to the evidence of the newsagent, the girl did jump on Batka's knee and jump off again. She was a lively young lady, and he had known her since she was four years old and was old enough to be her father. There was nothing suggestive in the circumstances. Batka didn't look upon the guard's threat as serious, and he didn't think he had reported the matter to the station master. Whitaker knew Batka stayed at Warner's when in Christchurch and had the guard reported the occurrence. Batka thought the station master would have interviewed him, Batka, about it. Accused acknowledged to Sergeant Johnston that he'd said to the guard, We're all human. That meant that the guard was human to place such a deplorable construction on Batka's action in the birdcage. From Sergeant Johnston, What is the lady's name? Mr Donnelly strenuously objected to the question. Hargreaves JP, It seems peculiar that the lady has not been called. Uh, the prosecution doesn't suggest she is a prostitute. Uh, why do you not call the lady? From Batka, she is a respectable lady and has no knowledge of this charge to avoid misconstruction on the motives of accused. Mr Donnelly suggested that he would give the name of the woman. Uh, what is the lady's name? Uh, Miss Wilson. She lives in Auckland with her family. Uh, what is her Christian name? I do not know. Are you separated from your wife? Yes. What was the reason? An accident. It was a domestic arrangement. Guard, Vernazzoni, recalled, swore positively to what had taken place. The bench retired and, returning in 12 minutes, found the case against Bat approved and fined him £10 in costs. It was subsequently discovered that the bench had no power to impose a fine and, after considerable argument with counsel, who claimed that previous good character didn't justify stigma of imprisonment, the bench convicted Batka and discharged him. The award-winning Heritage Matters is broadcast on the first Monday of each month at 9.30am and replayed on the following Sunday at 7pm. There are further replays on the third week of the month, Thursday at 1pm and Sunday at 7pm. Or you can listen as a podcast from the Otago Access Radio website at oar.org.nz.
As Aotearoa New Zealand's National Heritage Agency, Heritage New Zealand Pohere Taonga is proud to sponsor Heritage Matters. Celebrate our heritage by becoming a member to visit more than 20 heritage places we care for across the motu for free. You'll receive a subscription to our award-winning magazine, exclusive member events and free or discounted admission to over 1,000 international heritage places. Support the heritage of Aotearoa New Zealand. Check out visitheritage.co.nz This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.